0: Uh, Take your Bibles with me this morning. Open them uh, again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Our text today is Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, a sermon that I have titled, uh, The Prophet Without Honor. Uh, Homecoming is a tradition in American colleges and now in high schools, too, that dates back to over 100 years. It depends on who you ask, what school you ask, about who first started the, home, the first homecoming tradition, whether it was the University of Missouri or Baylor or someone else. They're always fighting about it. But it's a day, homecoming day, is a day full of honor and celebration when alums from college return to their alma mater for the first football game of the fall. And homecoming always gets pushed back further in the season. It's usually never the first game anymore. But uh, teams always want to schedule, you know, kind of another powder puff team if they can to at least get one win on the season. Every school has its own traditions around homecoming. But there's almost always, at homecoming, uh, an alumni barbecue, an alumni tailgate, an alumni recognition ceremony, and certainly because I get invitations from the University of New Mexico all the time, an alumni fundraising banquet. They just want more of my money. I already paid for one degree, y'all. Homecoming is also about football and honoring the football team, welcoming welcoming them with banners and cheers and teammates who were long graduated some time ago, welcoming them home to encourage the new squad. Jesus had a homecoming too. As He'd started His ministry in Galilee and taught and healed all throughout that region near the Sea of Galilee, at one point He left his sort of ministry home base in Capernaum, if you will, and went back to his hometown, to Nazareth, to minister there. Jesus' homecoming was far from the kinds of homecomings that we're accustomed to seeing at college football games today. Rather than being met with cheers and roars, he was met with jeers and rolling eyes. Jesus was a prophet without honor among his own people. What we see in verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 6 is uh, the problem of familiarity. You've heard the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. The familiarity that the Nazarenes had with Jesus, seeing Him grow up among them, knowing Him as the son of Mary the carpenter, and along with His uh, half-brothers and, and sisters. The familiarity that the Nazarenes had with Jesus, when He returned for His homecoming of sorts to minister in Nazareth, their familiarity with Jesus kept them from believing Him. And ultimately bred in them a cynicism that prevented them from actually trusting Him, believing He had the authority that He had. The main idea of our text this morning and the main idea of the sermon today is this, that familiarity breeds contempt, but faith breeds confidence in the power of Christ. Familiarity breeds contempt, but faith breeds confidence in the power of Christ. As we understand, seek to understand and explore God's Word this morning, it's my hope that we would not become unintentionally familiar with Jesus so as to be contemptuous when He convicts us uh, about who He is and about our need for Him, but rather that we would have faith in Christ that leads to great confidence in His power to save. I would invite you, as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We saw last week Jesus uh, in Capernaum uh, healing A woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, raising the synagogue leader, Jairus's little daughter, from the dead. And Mark, the gospel writer, continues in chapter 6, saying, He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. You may be seated. Familiarity breeds contempt, but faith breeds confidence in the power of Christ. There's a lot to observe in these short six verses, but I would call our attention to three things this morning. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that amazement, astonishment, is no substitute for acknowledgement. Amazement with Jesus, astonishment by Jesus, is no substitute for acknowledging Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, all the way at the beginning of his gospel, there the gospel writer introduced us to the ministry pattern of Jesus. He would go into Galilee, that region around the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mark is so helpful to summarize Jesus' preaching ministry with that one short sentence Repent, believe the gospel. And as Jesus goes around in Capernaum and the other side of the sea, and even in Nazareth, we always find Him teaching. And we can assume that the the summary of His teaching was something like that. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Believe the gospel. We know that Jesus found his home base for ministry in Capernaum, that city where Simon Peter and his brother Andrew lived, probably also with the other fishermen, James and John. But that's not the only place that Jesus goes. We saw him a few weeks ago go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he healed a man of the region of Gerasa with, uh, from, from a legion of demons. But it was in Capernaum back in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus' home base, that we saw Jesus for the first time being invited into the synagogue to teach on the Sabbath day. In Mark 1, beginning of verse 21, we read that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Interestingly enough, now here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to another town, this time his hometown of Nazareth, and he does the same thing. He receives an invitation to go teach in the synagogue, and he teaches in the synagogue, and what happens? Just like in Mark chapter 1, the people listening to him were astonished. The people were amazed at what Jesus was teaching. But different from what happened in Capernaum, the amazement of the Nazarenes does not lead them to receiving Jesus. doesn't lead them to, to a posture of receptivity, not to acknowledgement of his authority. It leads them to incredulity. can't believe this guy. Very quickly, they rattle off a number of questions in verse 2. Where did he get this knowledge? Who gave him this wisdom? How did he, how did he do these mighty works? It seems that though they were amazed at his teaching, they couldn't believe that Jesus was the one actually behind it all. Surely, someone else told him these things. Surely, he's only parroting what he's heard some other expert somewhere else say. Surely, these miracles we've heard that that he does are either some illusion or worse, there's some sort of dark magic. Certainly, this Jesus that we know and we saw grow up doesn't actually have authority to teach this way. This much is certain from the text. Jesus' fellow Nazarenes are astonished, it's the word that Mark uses, that this Jesus whom they knew as he grew up among them is teaching like this. But what's also certain is that mere amazement, mere astonishment with Jesus is not nearly the same as acknowledging him. Unlike the residents of Capernaum, the Nazarenes are unwilling to acknowledge the authority that Jesus seems to have within himself as a teacher of God. The people of Capernaum said he has authority, he teaches with authority, and and not not like the scribes, like this guy's got the goods. The people in Nazareth are saying, this guy's out of his mind. They treat his teaching like I treat the entertainment of the illusionists, pen and teller. I'm I'm amazed at how pen and teller can fool me by their illusions. They're so good at fooling me that they can tell me that they're going to fool me and exactly how they're going to fool me, and they fool me anyway, and I love it. But I'm nowhere near to acknowledging that Penn and Teller have actual magical powers. I know that it's a trick. The difference between pen and Teller and Jesus, apart from the entire list you just made up in your mind, <laughs> is that Jesus' intention in going to Nazareth is not to entertain. His teaching isn't meant to build a platform, but to call people to repent of sin. Mark summarized his gospel ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe the gospel. His mighty works when He heals people and casts out demons and controls storms. These are not cheap party tricks that are meant to sell tickets. These are demonstrations of the power of God for those who trust in His Son, Jesus, the only Christ. Merely being amazed by Jesus, astonished by Jesus when He shows up and does interesting things. Being amazed by Jesus is no substitute for acknowledging who He is, for recognizing His identity. That He is, as Mark tells us in the first verse of his gospel, the Christ Christ. The Savior of all who believe. He's the servant of God who will suffer for sinners and make them righteous. He's the Son of God with all power and authority within Himself. He's Lord. There's a warning for us as we come to this event in Mark's biography of Jesus. The warning is this. We need to take care not to be entertained by Jesus. We need to take care not to be entertained by Jesus. But rather to know Him in truth. To know Him in truth, that we might acknowledge Him as Lord. And how is it that we know Him? We, we, how is it that we know the message that He comes teaching? We come to know Him by listening to Him, by reading the Word. God has inspired human authors to write down re- recalling his life and all of the promises leading up to His life and all of the fulfillment of those promises in His life, the, the, the great hope of salvation and His death and resurrection and all the gifts that He gives to His church afterward. We come to know Him by listening to Him. And not, as, not listening to Him as one among a number of, of sideshow entertainers like, this guy is really, really neat. But listening to Him as God's Son who comes with all of the authority, all of the power that the Son of God the Father has. We listen to Him and we come to know who He is by acknowledging His authority and submitting to Him as Lord. We need to take a warning this morning, not to be entertained by Jesus. Friends, let us take care in this place that when we open God's Word each and every Sunday morning, not to come seeking to be entertained, not to come seeking to consume some sort of fancy Jesus-y TED talk, not to be merely amazed by the rhetorical skill of a human teacher, Not to be simply astonished at the skillful combination of reason and charisma and credibility of a preacher's argument. If that's the case, if that's what we're here for, we risk missing Jesus for being amazed by Him. Or even worse, by being amazed by human teachers, just like the Nazarenes did. That's a neat trick, Jesus. Where'd you learn it? As you, Christian, have opportunity to have gospel conversations or to explain the gospel to a non-believer, I encourage you, fight hard with faith, not to impress non-believers with your speaking skill, not to be an entertaining speaker, but only to help them to see Jesus clearly and to acknowledge Him. To know Jesus is not simply to admire Him or to be amazed by Him so as to ask, how did He do that? I want to learn that trick. But to know Him is to acknowledge Him as Lord, saying with faith, He is the Christ, the the Son of God, my King, my Redeemer astonishment is no substitute amazement is no substitute for acknowledgement this passage in this event in jesus life teaches us also in verses three and four that familiarity is often an obstacle to faith familiarity is often an obstacle to faith it's not uncommon for me to hear in bible study groups and i even asked it in a bible study group last sunday morning how could people be so near to jesus Hear him teach, see him heal, know the scriptures, know their promise of a Messiah, and miss Jesus altogether. How could they have him right there in front of him and not see who he was? How could they not believe? Verses 3 and 4 of our passage today tell us at least one reason why they didn't believe. And that reason, at least for the Nazarenes, was familiarity. When Jesus returned to Nazareth to teach, he went back to his hometown. He went to the neighbors that he grew up with, to the shopkeepers he bought groceries from, to the maybe even to the synagogue that he attended as a child with his mother and his brothers and his adoptive father Joseph. He went home. And when he teaches there in the synagogue, Mark says in verse 4 that the people took offense at him. Literally, they were scandalized by his teaching. Precisely because they thought they knew what Jesus was and wasn't capable of. Their questions about him are of the condescending type where does this guy get this stuff he's a carpenter it's not necessarily a dig at jesus occupation uh, as a carpenter as a a handyman a carpenter wasn't just a woodworker in those days they were also capable of working with stone and other materials as well they're kind of like the town handyman this guy's no trained rabbi he's 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 a general contractor he makes plows and yokes and and window frames shoot when i was eight he came with joseph to put a roof on my house this is Mary's son. We know him. We know his mom. The question, uh, uh, isn't this Mary's son? Could be coming from one of two different angles. Either one relatively well-meaning, meaning meaning that Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, was dead at this point. He's not mentioned in this text. He passed away and Mary was a widow. And so they're just recognizing the only surviving parent. Or this question could have a, a little bit of a dig to it. It could be a little bit of an insult recalling maybe a possible rumor that Jesus was the illegitimate child of Mary's illicit affair with some stranger. This is Mary's son. And on top of that, he's the brother of these guys and these girls. We know him. He grew up here. What can this Jesus teach us? He's no different than we are, and he has the nerve to call us to repentance. In their familiarity with Jesus, thinking that they know him, the Nazarenes have built an obstacle to faith in Jesus. This isn't new in Mark either. This isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, you remember back in Mark chapter 3 when we read about Jesus' own family accusing him of being out of his mind and coming to Capernaum to get him to stop this silly mission of his and come home. The familiarity that Jesus' mother and brothers had with him kept them from faith at first, and for the town of Nazareth, it's done the same. Some of you hearing this this morning know all too well the rejection that Jesus faced in Nazareth. Some of you are the only Christians in your family. Some of you came to faith in Jesus as teenagers in your home, only to be insulted and teased by your unbelieving parents. Some of you have come to know Christ as adults and had your children distance themselves from you after your conversion. Some of you have lost friends because Jesus changed your heart and called you away from sin and to holiness. And because of your faith in Him, your your friends and your family say things to you like, who do you think you are? We grew up together. You're no better than me. I changed your diapers, and you think you can change my soul with this Jesus talk? I thought I knew you, Mom. This Jesus stuff is just too much. If this is the way you're going, I'm not going with you. You're crazy. You're stupid. Get out of here. Jesus says plainly to those in Nazareth, "A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own home. Sometimes we're surprised that people would reject Jesus having seen and heard all that they saw and heard from Him, and yet He was rejected by the people closest to Him, the people who knew Him best. Some of you, because of Jesus, have been rejected by those who are closest to you, by those who know you best. The response of the Nazarenes to Jesus reminds us of two things this morning. First, His rejection because of their familiarity reminds us, or rather it foreshadows the ultimate rejection of Jesus, not just by his family, not just by Nazareth, but by the people of Israel. That their rejection of him as Messiah will lead to his betrayal and death by crucifixion. It was his death that would provide the means of our salvation and was itself the grounds for his vindication as Messiah by being raised from the dead. When Jesus is betrayed later, we're not surprised because he was rejected here, even in Nazareth. The response of the Nazarenes to Jesus also reminds us of the promise that we who follow Jesus, the promise that we'll also be rejected by the world. This has been the norm for those who resist the call of God to repent and believe. Those who resist the call of God reject those who receive it. The Israelites rejected prophets like Elijah. They mocked other prophets who warned them of coming exile. Jeremiah the prophet was imprisoned by his own people, thrown into a pit in the ground. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned, all of these, for calling the people of Israel to repent of sin, to believe God, to trust jesus that Jesus was the Christ. If Jesus was hated by His people, we ought not be surprised. If He was hated by the people in His hometown, we ought not to be surprised if people in our hometowns, in our close circles, dislike and hate us too. In fact, Jesus Himself promised that we would experience this. John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says to His disciples, "'If the world hates you, know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, "'A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept My word, they'll also keep yours.'" but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Familiarity is often an obstacle to faith. So take heart, dear Christian who's been despised by your family and your friends because of your faith in Jesus. Your suffering for following him puts you in the good company and shared experience of your own Savior. And simultaneously, Christian, We must emulate the gentleness and confidence in God that Jesus had when He preached a difficult message of repentance and faith. The Nazarenes stumbled all over Jesus' identity and what they assumed of Him, but He was Himself, even in His teaching, not offensive. When sharing the gospel, we need to make every effort to allow the gospel message to be the only thing that causes offense. If anyone's going to stumble over anything... Let them not stumble over our character. Let them not stumble over our attitude. Let them not stumble over over the names we call them. Let them stumble over the truth of the gospel. When sharing the gospel, make every effort to allow the gospel message to be the thing that causes offense. Be gentle, be patient, be convictional, but be full of grace and compassion for those that you explain the gospel to. Do not be a scandalous, do not be an offensive gospel proclaimer. Let only the call to repent of sin and trust Christ be that which offends others. And here I offer one more warning that regular church going and familiarity with church things can be quite dangerous. Regular church going and familiarity with Jesus and Jesus y stuff and Jesus y people can be very dangerous. Now, it's not dangerous for the one who loves Jesus. It's not dangerous for the one who has seen their sin and their need of Him and turned to Him for forgiveness and healing and righteousness. Church attendance and participation in gospel worship is not dangerous for the person who comes to commune with God and to fellowship and joy with other believers. But it is a danger for the one who does it because they see it as something fun to do. Because church is where all of their friends are. Because they like being in a place with moral and well behaved people. Because they like the music because the preacher is good, whatever that may mean. People who go to church merely for the social and emotional shot in the arm that it gives are in grave danger of being familiar with Jesus to such a point that they reject their need for a Savior. Being in church is a dangerous place for a person who thinks it's fun to be in church, and that's it. Churchgoers like this place themselves in the very dangerous position of hearing the gospel so many times that they might even be able to repeat it. But in their priority for socializing, they forget to actually believe Christ. In their priority for entertainment, they forget that they actually have to repent of sin and trust Christ. And they deceive themselves into thinking that because they're associated with Christian things, that they are in fact Christian. When reminded of their sin, they look at their relatively good behavior, and they scoff when called to repent. They respond with prideful anger. You can't tell me what to do. I go to church. I give to this church. I'm in Bible study. You can't tell me to repent. When confronted with their confusion of the gospel with good behavior, thinking that just to be good and around jesus stuff is what leads to salvation when confronted with the reality that no, salvation comes by turning from sin and trusting Christ and giving your life to Him as Lord, not just by being in church, they take offense. Parents, as we long to have our children in church with us, I've got four, I've got a vested interest in this. As we long to have our children with us in church, let us fight with faith not to rest our souls with the hope that our children become merely familiar with Jesus but that they know Him by repentance and trust Amen. and have come to love His beauty. Yep. Parents, grandparents, it is not enough that our children just be in church. They must know Christ. So let us not rest our souls with them merely being familiar with Jesus because their familiarity may, lead, may eventually become an obstacle to them actually believing. Let us live in such a way that shows them the beauty of Jesus the wonder of the gospel, the the hope and and the real joy in in not just knowing things about Jesus, but by living in relationship with Him as Lord. So we've seen in this text that astonishment or amazement is no substitute for acknowledgement. We've seen that familiarity is often an obstacle to faith. And as our passage this morning closes in verses 5 and 6, we see that disbelief ultimately rejects saving power. Disbelief rejects saving power. As the scene closes, we make an interesting observation. Mark tells us that because of the people's lack of faith and rejection of Jesus, that he could not do any mighty works among them except for healing a sparse, faithful few. Did you catch that? He could do no mighty work there. In saying it this way, Mark is not saying that Jesus somehow gets his power to heal from the faith that people express, the way that Peter Pan flies by thinking happy thoughts. That's not how it works. In case you are curious or you've been confused, that's not how it works. Rather, Mark is saying that the works Jesus was doing... Healing people, and especially in chapter 5, healing this woman with this issue of blood, bringing this girl back from the dead. The the mighty works that Jesus does are facilitated and received by those who believe. Jesus says to the woman, Go, your faith, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. He tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. And then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's not possible for human beings to restrict or to handcuff God by not believing. Did you know you cannot rob God of power by not believing in Him? But God in His providence has limited the exercise of His saving power to those who do believe. Just as Jesus' rejection in Nazareth foreshadows His rejection by Israel, so also His restriction of healing from those who disbelieve foreshadows the reality that salvation of sin only comes to those who trust Him. We need to notice today that these people in Nazareth are not mere skeptics. They're not mere doubters, but these people in Nazareth are cynics who have denied that there's anything in Jesus to have faith in. One Bible commentator, David Garland, uh, on, verse, uh, on his commentary on verse 5, says that doubt has trouble believing. Doubt has trouble believing. Many of us in this room have doubted before. There's nothing wrong with doubting. There's nothing wrong with having trouble believing You think of the man who came to Jesus seeking healing for his son. And Jesus says, do not fear, only have faith. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe you can, but I'm struggling with it. Doubt is one thing. Doubt has trouble believing. But unbelief, disbelief, obstinately refuses to believe. Disbelief, unbelief is not, cynicism is not, I'm having trouble believing. It is saying, I don't believe and I won't believe. David Garland continues saying, Mark portrays Jesus' hometown as mired in an obstinate unbelief that deprived them of the gracious benefits of God's reign. And the hardened unbelief of the cynic today does the same thing. Now, there are a lot of things that we disagree with uh, non-believers about who Jesus is. I think we would agree that the difference between Christians and non-Christians, and if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not yet a Christian, I, I think hopefully we can find some common ground here, and, and graciously so, in, in agreeing on what we don't agree on. We believe differently, Christians and non-Christians, about who Jesus is and who the Scriptures say that He is. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Non-Christians generally don't. Christians believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, to be sinless, non-Christians don't believe this. Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross, and there are many non-Christians who also believe this. But Christians believe that Jesus died as a sinless man on the cross, and there, he was, there was laid on Him the sins of the world. And non-Christians do not believe this. We believe that Jesus died as He provided perfect payment for those sins, so that whoever would believe in Him as God's Son and the substitute for sinners who would repent of sins and turn to Him in faith, that these would receive Christ's righteousness and be made right with God. Non-Christians do not believe this. Christians believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Most non-Christians do not. Christians believe that Jesus was raised and given a glorified body, never to die again. And in this body, He appeared to His disciples and many others as a proof of His resurrection and His victory over sin and death. Christians believe that because Jesus died for sins and was raised from the dead, That whoever confesses that he is Lord, that he is God, that he is king of our lives, and believe God raised him from the dead, will receive salvation from sin, forgiveness of sins, a restored and perfectly right standing with God. Non-Christians then will disagree with our conclusions about who Jesus is and what he has done. I think we can all agree on that. We as Christians believe that all people, whether they believe or not, are created in God's image. And are worthy of all dignity and respect. So we who know Christ and have been made right by Him, we don't return evil for evil when people despise us for our faith or make fun of us for our faith. But out of love for those who do not believe, we humbly and patiently, confidently, hold out the good news of salvation for those who don't yet believe. And we pray that if you're not a believer in Jesus, not a Christian yet, that you'll hear the message of Jesus and not reject it out of hand, but that you'll investigate it, that you'll investigate Him, the claims of Christ, and we pray that you'll not respond in offense at the person of Christ and what He calls you to, to repent and believe, but we pray that you'll receive Him with faith. Jesus' own family and hometown didn't believe Him, at least not at first, so skepticism doesn't surprise us. Some of us were skeptics too. Some of us were doubters too. Our invitation to you this morning, if you're skeptical about Jesus, is simply this today, Do not let your skepticism turn into cynicism. Don't let your doubt or your questions turn into disbelief and a total rejection of Jesus. Don't let your feeling of, I'm having trouble believing, turn into, I don't believe and I won't believe. Investigate Jesus' claims. Inspect the biblical record. Give Jesus a fair hearing before rejecting Him out of hand. And we have some easy resources actually that are available to you to consider Jesus and who He was and what the gospel is and whether or not it's something you, you can believe and trust. Uh, on a little round table in our foyer, we have these three little uh, pamphlets. One is called, the red one's called, Who is Jesus? The white one is, Why Trust the Bible? The fourth one is, What is the gospel? If you're struggling or you're working through questions about who Jesus is, why I can trust the Bible, what, what is this gospel that these people keep talking about? Grab one, two, or all three of those uh, little pamphlets, take them home, read them. Uh, we would love to spend time as a church with you trying to answer your questions about Jesus, trying to, trying to answer your, your questions of doubt and skepticism with, uh, with, with reasonable responses from God's Word that lead you to faith. Whatever you do, don't reject Jesus with hard-hearted cynicism, but give Him a fair hearing. Perhaps you're the sort of non-believer who says, surely, though, if there's a God... And if this God that you believe is loving, even if I don't believe Him, when I die, I'm sure that He'll understand that I just didn't have the evidence I really needed. He'll get it. He'll let me in. He'll say, oh, ah, yeah, that's fair. Old Johnny boy didn't, didn't see what he needed to see. So I'll, I'm going to let him in anyway. He did his best. I want to warn you, the Scripture plainly says, the Bible plainly says that salvation and life with God is a gift received by faith, that is received by belief. Trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says that the Word of God itself, these Bibles we hold in our laps today, the Word of God itself is sufficient for evidence to believe. That if you're waiting for God to write some fancy message in the sky, you may be waiting a really, really long time because He's already written a whole lot more words right here. The Bible even notes that if someone will not believe that God has spoken by His Word, he's neither likely to believe even if he should see some sort of miraculous sign in the sky. Or better, someone coming back from the dead. Jesus tells a parable during His ministry in Luke chapter 16. A parable about a rich man, a fictional story about a rich man and a poor man. And both the rich man and the poor man die. And they go to their respective places in the afterlife. The rich man goes to Hades. The poor man goes to the right hand of Abraham. Abraham's bosom. He goes to paradise. And there, as Jesus tells this fictional story, he he paints a picture of the rich man there in Hades being tormented with uh, the the flames of hell there and his separation from God because of his unbelief. And this rich man in hell is crying out across this uncrossable chasm to Abraham in paradise saying, Abraham, help my brothers because they're all going to end up in the same place that I am. They're still alive, but if you'll send someone back from the dead to tell them about what awaits for them if they don't change their ways and believe God. Then they'll believe. Jesus in his parable says this, Abraham said to the rich man in Hades, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have God's word written down. Let them listen to that. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but, but, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to my word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a reason Jesus goes to the synagogue and teaches there before doing any mighty works. It's because the plain word of God, clearly spoken, is what we are to believe, not merely powerful signs. We believe God is good. We believe God is trustworthy, and he need not do miracles in abundance to be believed. And that even if he did do miracles in abundance, in our own sinful way, we would find some reason not to believe them anyway. The Nazarene's astonishment with Jesus' plain teaching leads to cynical disbelief, and their disbelief elicits genuine amazement by Jesus. I can't believe this guy. Who is he? Amazement by Jesus or amazement at Jesus, not because uh, excuse me, Jesus, and Jesus is also amazed in this passage. He's amazed at their unbelief. Can you believe these people don't believe? Verse six says he marveled because of their unbelief, not because he's surprised by their response, not because he's surprised that they disbelieve him, but because their hard-heartedness is so thick with the sad irony that thinking they know him, they missed him altogether. Jesus is looking at this, going, "Wow, wow." My friend, this morning, knowing that disbelief rejects saving power, avoid the pitfall of the Nazarenes. And by Nazarenes, I mean people who live in Nazareth, not the denomination of the Nazarenes. <laughs> avoid the pitfall of Jesus' hometown people. Do not let familiarity with Jesus breed contempt for Him in your heart. Rather, let faith inspire confidence in you that Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ and Messiah, is Himself the very Redeemer that the Old Testament promised. He is the very Savior we all desperately need. And I encourage you today, honor Him with the homecoming He truly deserves by repenting of your sin and trusting Him, by calling on Him as Lord, by walking after Him in obedient worship. Let faith in Christ breed confidence in you strong enough to weather the rejection of men and humble enough to consistently hold out the hope of Jesus Christ all the same. Familiarity breeds contempt, but faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus breeds great confidence in his power to save. Let's continue in believing and calling others to do the same. Will you pray with me?